0: Welcome everyone, this is Jessica Zhu. I am Assistant Professor of Religion at University of Southern California at Dornsife, and the New Books Network host in Buddhist Studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Yao Zhihua from the Chinese University of Hong Kong to talk with us about his new book, Non-Existent Objects in Buddhist Philosophy, Knowing What There Is Not. This is published in 2020 by Bloomsbury Academic. So welcome, Zhihua. Thank you so much for writing this mind-bending book. I mean, even just the re- reading the title makes me feel like I have a cognitive uh, dissonance. But anyway, in common sense terms, right, only existing things can be known, right? But as loosely explained in your book, many thinkers East, West, past, present, they actually said, yes, you can know non-existent things. And you explain to us how did these thinkers made their arguments. Your book is just full of surprises and insights. So when I'm reading it, I often tell myself, Okay, that's what it is about? Aha, uh-huh, now I got it. But I don't think I can reproduce your arguments in the book. But, you know, you get that aha moments through the reading. And I also hope the listeners of this podcast will find similar moments during our interview. And maybe this podcast will encourage at least some to pick up this dense book and start reading it. And rest assured, this is the most difficult book I've read so far. It's not about lens. The book itself is only like 181 pages, including endnotes. It's all about the density of new information. Each page, right, contains like informations, new arguments that need to be read multiple times and processed very carefully. So listeners, if you're like me, please don't get discouraged while reading, even though the book is meant to be read as a whole, right? You can get a well-rounded picture about like non-existent objects in Buddhist philosophy. But if you feel it's too much, learn the whole history, the whole picture, uh, the philosophical diversities among different schools, is totally okay to just focus on one chapter or even one argument within a chapter, because each argument explained coherently as a philosophical unit. So you can actually tackle the book in baby steps. And that's how I managed to finish reading this book. And I hope you'll find my reading tip useful. Um, so, Zhihua, I'd like to start our interview with the traditional New Books Network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself, how you came to study ancient philosophy, especially Buddhist philosophy, and how I, and how did you find out your book is about knowing non-existing objects?
1: Uh, thank you, Jessica, uh, very much for spending your precious time reading my humble book. It's my great honor to be here in the New Books Network. Uh, I'm a professor at the Department of Philosophy, the Chinese University uh, of Hong Kong. My research area include Buddhist philosophy, Indian philosophy, philosophy religion, phenomenology, and philosophy of uh, mind. I received my PhD from Boston University, where I specialize in Buddhist philosophy. After the publication of my first book, The Buddhist Theory of Self-Cognition in uh, 2005, I began working on this topic of non-existence or nothing. And eventually, the book was published three years ago. So I've been doing nothing for more than 10 years.
0: Thank you so much um, for like letting us know. But when did you, why did you start working on the topic of nothing? What's intriguing about it for you? What's fascinating about it?
1: Yeah for that part maybe I'll get into that you uh, know later uh, uh, uh,
0: later parts okay yeah. um keep or you know, keep alert and listen to that interesting parts so thank you um your book contains an introduction eight chapters divided in two parts i'd like to start our interview uh, with your introduction here um you like lay out like three inquiries central to your analysis in the ensuing chapters, but one is about whether we can cognize or know non-existent objects. So some Buddhist schools like Sarvastivadins, the school that sees past, present, future namas or events as existing um, because they are knowable, but Sarvas Dimadin say no, but others could say yes. And of course, the focus of your book is the camps who said yes, right? And why they say yes and how they justify their answer. One way that these schools can say yes is that they distinguish between generating condition, Janaka Pratyaya, and the other, and the condition, the other condition is a condition in a quality of object, Alambana Pratyaya, um, foreign terms. Could you, for the benefits of the listeners, Explain what are these two terms? Why are they important for your analysis?
1: Yeah, you've caught a pair of key concepts in this whole book, Hatsuri. Uh There's a the theory of cognition commonly accepted by major Buddhist schools. That is, the cognition is possible with the two conditions. In the basis, that is, sense organ, and an object. But Subandu, uh, one of the key figures I'm working on, uh, took the key step in distinguishing between generating cognition, which is in Sanskrit, Janaka uh, Pratyaya, which is the condition that gives rise to cognition, and objective condition, Alambana Pratyaya, that is the condition merely in the quality of an object. He agrees that both collisions are necessary, but they function differently. The sense organ is not generating collision, the object is not collision in a qualitative object. He uses example of future things and nirvana to illustrate this point. Both are no doubt knowable, but they cannot give rise to any commission because the cause, that is future things, cannot be temporarily posterior to its effect that is, their cognition at the present. So in the case of nirvana, uh, by definition, uh, it is the cessation of all arising. So these objects, such as future things and nirvana, do not have to act as the generating condition of their cognition, but are merely its objective condition. Uh, so in the case of non-existent things, certainly it cannot produce anything. So it cannot be in a generic cognition of cognition, but this non-existent thing can still be in the cognition of cognition in a qualitative object. That means it can be an object of cognition. So therefore it is established that there is a cognition of non-existent object. It is the key concept the first part of
0: the whole book. Wow, thank you so much. But the future and Nirvana as examples of um, Alambana, Pritiyaya, but doesn't have the generating condition. That's the key. So let's just try to hold this in mind and then go through the arguments. So thank you so much, Jihua, for such a lucid explanation. So in the introductions, after laying out the key concept, you map up, map out for us the whole structure of your book. Here I'm just you know reiterating it for the benefits of the listeners, so you know if you pick up this book what to expect. There are four chapters in Part One where you lay out the key arguments of three schools and one thinker, uh, Mahasangika tantika early Yogacara, and of course Vasubandhu. And these are arguments regarding how they talk about cognitions of um, non-existing objects and how they distinguish cognizable non-existence from other types of non-existence, such as absolute non-existence, illusions, abstract, universal, special meditative um, objects. Here you also explain how they argue, their arguments relate to negative expressions, cognitive thoughts, or cognitive errors, and emotional experiences. Then you segue to part two, into epistemology. Chapter five, chapters five and seven focus on the epistemological issues regarding um, non-existence, like how do you know. Um, Chapter six is about empty terms in Buddhist epistemological school. And chapter eight is the final chapter where where you lay out the typologies of nothing. I don't really know nothing has a typology until I read your book. But this is a lot of new information for readers to process further. So let us dive in into each chapter and explain the foreign terms, the seemingly bizarre concept one by one. Part one, chapter one. Here, you marshaled quite a few scattered sources in Pali, Chinese, and reconstructed for us three arguments for the cognition of non-existent objects. Um, of the Mahasangika schools. The first two are soon forgotten by later Buddhists and would remain forgotten until you, Professor Yao Shihua, excavated them, I would assume. Um, And then the first argues that Anushaya Klesha is the latent development have no object. This is a sociological concept to distinguish ordinary people in deep meditative state versus an enlightened being. And the second argument is that jnana or awareness have no objects. And these two arguments seem to follow the same strategy in the sense that they are associated with sankhara, therefore have no objects. And the third argument is is the relatively well-known one. And the focal point is about the Sotrantika Sarvastivada debate, that is because the past and future does not exist, therefore consciousness of the past and future are consciousness without objects. So please tell... Us, our listeners a bit more about what sort of problems these three arguments were trying to kind of resolve and maybe also explain to us well, who are the Mahasangikas and their related sub-schools, and how do they differ from the Sarvastivadins?
1: Yeah, thank you. This is a very nice summary of the book and, and also the chapter one. Yeah, As I said in the book, uh, we know very little about Mahasangika school and we only learn about their views on this issue from scattered sources of, of their critics. Uh, one feature I noted is that uh, unlike other later schools, the Masangikas had concerns about sociological issues. Uh, this is especially evident in their discussions and Anushaya, which is latent deformity. Uh, Only later, the cognition of non-existent objects gradually became a purely epistemological issue. Regarding their historical backgrounds, I regret that I I didn't provide enough background information on many early Buddhist schools that I've been uh, discussing in this book. Uh, But in my uh, 2005 book, The Buddhist Theory of Self-Cognition, I also Deal, uh, deals with the, uh, various early Buddhist schools such as Masangika, Savaswara, and Susandika. And there, I had separate sections introducing basic historical information in each school. So, interested readers are welcome to refer to that book. Here, I'm not going to dive into too much historical details.
0: Thank you. Um, for listeners interested in the historical details, um, check out Professor Yajohar's earlier book. Oh, I think a good Buddhist dictionary would have some in, important um, historical backgrounds. But now let's segue into uh, chapter two. Um, chapter Chapter two is about um, Darshtantika's will. Darshtantika is a subgroup of Sarvastivada. So here you recovered this Darshtantika's um, view on non-existent objects from Abhidhamma mahavibhasha Sastra. This is the text edited by Vibhashikas. The Babashika is an influential sub-school of Sarvastivada. And Darshtantika's view is that it's interesting because you argued that they learned Mahasangika view of non-existent objects, which is already showing us like Mahasangika, Sarvastivada, they may be not sworn enemies, right? They learn from each other. And then, but they also further developed these Mahasangika arguments that he, they inherited. So from the sources scattered in I get there is three main texts, Maha, um, Maha Vibhasha, and the other is Cheng Shilun, Janaka, Paramopadesha, and Nyaya Sutra, right? You uncovered four main arguments. One is about saturating out things, vastu, into internal and external things. And then the other is Vedana, into the Vedana is kind of a sensations, feelings, into bodily feelings and mental feelings. And the second argument is resorting to optical illusions, like we all perceive non-existing mirage. And the fourth is about negative statements, like we are aware, we can be aware of non-existence of the desire. Uh, for example, that's part of the condition of getting enlightened. And then for meditative experiences, um, for example, meditative objects, existing or non-existing. So that sounds like a lot of interesting concepts. Could you please pass out, unpack for the benefits of listeners? What are the significance of this argument and historically, and how did they get it developed? by this um, Dandika school.
1: Uh, among all the chapters, uh, I'm actually least satisfied with this chapter as compared to other chapters. This chapter has the richest resources from Savasdhwada Abhidhamma works, uh, which are, yeah, most of them extend in, in Chinese translation or, or Sanskrit. Uh, the debate between the two sub-schools of Sarvaswada, that is Vibhachika and Dastagika, is also well-known among scholars. So I, uh, while writing this chapter, I intentionally avoid overlapping with early studies and emphasize those aspects that were neglected by, by them. For example, debate on whether meditative objects exist or not. Uh, if I were to rewrite this chapter, I would, as suggested by you, lay out the historical development of these arguments more clearly. Certainly, the difficulty in doing so is that we are not very clear about the so-called the Stannikas. How they relate to Stannika is also a difficult issue.
0: Yeah. So, the is just really we know about them because my Baishikas wrote about them. <laughs> I'm not asking to rewrite the whole chapter. I'm just amazed by how much new information can get there for us. Um, so chapter three, let's move. That's Yogacara Bhumi, right? Um, this is a Yogachara Bhumi. is an encyclopedic treatise of Yogacara school. And for early Yogacara view of uh, buddhi and vinyana, uh, cognition of non-existent objects, um, this is what you do to activate this text for those uh, views. So here you summarize and group Yogacara positions into five arguments. The first is about the past and future that um, reminds us of Mahasangika's and Sarvastivadin's uh, debates. The second is about expanding the definition of dharma, right? These uh, momentarily arising and disappearing kind of uh, um, particles to include non-existent dharmas. And the third is about no-self and impermanence. Two dharmas that neither conditions or no conditions, so like the horn of a rabbit or son of a barren woman. They are all ontologically non-existing, but somehow we can talk about them. And the fourth argument is about food and drinks. Um, This is a little bit... Anyway, let me just try to explain what I think I gather from your book. So food and drinks are seen as non-existing in many Buddhist schools because... Only in the kind of uh, the dharma's the minute article particles events, right? They they exist. Food and drinks just combinations of dharma's, therefore they do not really exist. Kind of my gather is is like modern scientific realism. Everything is made up of atoms, elementary particles, so they don't really exist in their own rights. My stomach will say no, they actually exist. <laughs> but like if you follow the the the, the Dhamma, you kind of uh, argument or Yugacharya argument, they say no, they don't exist. So that's the fourth argument. And the fifth is about how Yogacaryans who commit to ontologically non-existing dharmas distance themselves from a kind of as ethical nihilism that sees all things as non-existing. Uh, By seeing things as they are, that's how they distinguish, right? We don't see things as non-existing, we see see things as they are. So Yogacara thinkers reject the wholesale rejection of existence and argues that one sees existing dharmas as existing and non-existing dharmas as non-existing. All right, that's a little bit kind of mind-biting. So you see things as things they really are means you see existing things as existing and non-existing things as non-existing. You have to explain for us like what is it what do they mean <laughs> and then now, now you conclude this chapter by comment on that Yugacharians are generally successful in defending their positions and they are conditions of um, there are conditions of non-existent objects so could you please explain and unpack for us um, why are these arguments important to know and f- um, and then maybe also contrast them with some mainstream Western views on negation and cognition of non-existence?
1: Uh, in part one, uh, my comparative approach is not as explicit as in part two, uh, as we'll getting into there. Uh, but this doesn't mean that uh, the issues discussed in part one are less relevant to us today or to the mainstream Western views. All issues related to existence or non existence in this chapter and other chapters are contributed by the linguistic phenomena peculiar to Indo European languages. Uh, in Sanskrit, for instance, when, when one says, Asti, Atitam, Asti, Anagaram, uh, yeah, this is the, the first discussed by Vasubandhu. So it can mean there is. Uh, which is translation of Asti, the past and there is, again, the translation of Asti, the future. Or it can be translated as the past exists, exists, again, is in the translation of Asti, and the future exists, again, translation of Asti. So this is because popular uh, Asti, one of the Sanskrit popular Asti, and existence of work, are to a great extent confused in Sanskrit and in other Indo-European languages. But Subando thinks that the word ASTI is applied to what exists as well as to what does not exist. The past does not exist, but it exists previously. The future does not exist, but it will exist. Therefore, we can say there are past and future but it does not necessarily mean that the past and future exist. The source of the problem goes back to the overlapping or confusion between computer and existential work in almost all Indo-European languages. In contrast, the two types of words are clearly distinguished in some non european languages such as Chinese or Arabic, uh, English, although it is uh, uh, in the european language, has less tendency to distinguish, to be, sorry, has the tendency to distinguish, uh, to be from, to exist. And hence, its capital and existence of work are less easily confused, because uh, we we in English, we use to be and to exist in some different sense. Yeah. This is why we can make better sense of these su- sentences in their English translations they're in uh, their Sanskrit original. Yeah, that's just one example.
0: Thank you so much, Johua. So just for the readers, copular uh, actually means just the to be verb. And then in Sanskrit, it's asti. One of the forms is asti. And then in, you know, uh, in, I think in Chinese, at least we have the shi and yu that distinguish um, this two sense of, of, of the copular to be, right? To be can mean um, there exists, to be can mean this is. So that's just the linguistic terms for listeners. And then that can cause actually lots, lots of problems of interpretations. And then people can just keep on debating on it. I don't think you can have a definitive answer. But if you want to know more how that you know, relates to the issues of non-existing objects and then whether you can perceive them, uh, read this chapter. So chapter 4. Ah, This is a very nice chapter. (laughs) And of course, he's talking about my favorite philosopher, this Indian uh, uh, 4th, 5th century philosopher Vasubandhu is a key figure in many philosophical schools like Sarvastivada, Dashtantika Sarvastivada, and of course, Yugachara. And an in depth understanding of his writings will shed light on the relationships between the so called Mahasangika, whose concept theory of cognition of non existence object was inherited and developed by Darsh Chit- uh, Shantika, and Yugachara. So, Vasubandhu's writings are exciting also because. He has enemies who wrote extensive refutations of Vasubandhu's arguments. So scholars can get to this context and backgrounds of certain debates. So in this chapter, Zhuhua, you summarize Vasubandhu's positions into six arguments, all of which refute this Vaibhashika's view that the past and the future exist. Um, shall I read it? Let I me mean, just read out something. So whatever is knowable, existing, this this is the Vibashika view, right? The two generating conditions for Vibashika is the basis that is the sense that we talk about when we talk about the introduction chapter an object, knowable. And then the second point is that the past and future are knowable. Therefore, Vibashika reached the conclusion that therefore the past and future are existing uh, which is a kind of a circular argument um, which on page eighty, you mentioned that this is an epistemological argument based on an epistemological definition of existence. It never really touches upon the ontological status of past and future. And then after you lay out what is my basic position, you actually... um, map out Masubandu's arguments, six of them, against the above Vibeshika's position. Given the richness of Masubandu's arguments, especially how he inherited other schools, philosophical schools, kind of yet further develop his own arguments at his own twists. Maybe, could you please tell, the audience, why you think Vasubandhu uh, received influence from all directions and is a great syncretic that you mentioned on page 88. And maybe also tell us how useful are the labels of philosophical schools such as Mahasangika, Sarvastivada, Dashtantika, Yogacara, especially when we trace argument about cognition of non-existent objects. And comment on your own methodology. Why do you choose to follow this particular historical contour and philosophical development of this particular debate? What are some advantages and disadvantages of doing research in this way?
1: Yeah, I said I I don't want to talk about too much about history, but here you are pushing me again. <laughs> um, yeah, Vasubandhu is a complicated historical figure as he has left us so many creative writings. It seemed to belong to different labels of philosophical schools, such as Savasvada, Sotshantika, and Yogacara. Uh, from vana's from theory of two Vansubanus, to the recent theory of Sotshantika, uh, as found in Abhinamakosavasia, being a disguised Yogacara, uh, scholars try to make sense the complexity of his thought. As far as the current issue is concerned, I think it makes more sense to consider him a great syncretic, as it is evident that he received influence from both the Yukichar and and Stadika. And meanwhile, his person is clearly Sushantika. So on this issue, they were fighting with their common enemy, the Orthodox the Vibashikas. Uh, Actually, doing historical study in the Indian context is always difficult, if not impossible, uh, since so few historical resources are available. Hence, I paid more attention to the philosophical aspects rather than the historical one. The advantage of this approach is that we can explore the relevance of these Indian thinkers to uh, contemporary philosophy you in know, more fully. Manner, yeah.
0: Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, so you reminds us philosophy, especially some of the particular arguments, transcend time, but even though they receive, you know, you can see the development of the ideas based on Mahasangika, Sarvastivada's, You know, you see, you can trace the historical inheritance, but it's important thing is that they are making a kind of a logical argument on their own that can be um, extracted from those historical conditions. So now, part one, is done, for chapters, we are ready to unpack part two, epistemology, another like huge area. So chapter five and seven focus on these issues, uh, epistemological issues regarding non-existence. And chapter six is about empty terms. And chapter eight, the final chapter, is about topologies of nothingness. Let's go through them one by one. Chapter five is non cognition. excavates um, Ishwarasena's ideas on non cognition from sources scattered in discussions about Phayang, um, in Dhammapala, um, Asvabhava, Jina and the Chinese counterparts, and the discussions about Apramanata Phayang, right in Dhammakirti in his uh, commenters. Uh, so these sources all dated back to seventh to eighth century common era. Um, Understanding these arguments help clarify relations between the three prominent thinkers of non-cognition, the Mimamsaka Kumarila, the Buddhist um, Ishwarasena and Ishwarasena students Dhammakrti, and to map out the early development of theory of non-cognition, at least based on these three thinkers. So from this scattered source, again, you extract for us the philosophical arguments um, uncover influ- influential early series of um, Pramana, maybe Pramana Vedic cognition. I know it's not a perfect translation, um, but you know, um, but this includes three instead of the two commonly known ones, perception and reference, then the third one is being non-cognition, right? The Vedic cognitions includes three. So which, according to a recently discovered Dunhuang manuscripts, especially um, Tang Tanguan's treatise is the cognition of non-existence or non-cognizable objects that's mentioned in page 108. So could you please um you know explain to our listeners who proposed this kind of Sri Pramana theory and who were its defenders and critics and why a pramana, right, this non-cognition failure, or um are eventually forgotten by later Yogacaryans.
1: Yeah, regarding the uh, Buddhist Pramana school uh, or Buddhist epistemological school, although we know a lot about two of its major figures, that is, Dignaga and Dharmakirti, uh, we know very little about what happens in between them, which is roughly in a span of 60 years. Based on very limited sources, I have explored in a theory developed by Ishwar Shina during this period. This theory proposed the third pramana that is responsible for the cognition of non-existent objects. As uh, I- I- I've shown in chapter seven, the was the major critique of this theory. He rejects the proposal for a separate pramana and includes the cognition of non-existent objects in inference, which is the second type of pramana. So given his great influence in the history of Buddhist philosophy, Ishwarasena's theory was eventually forgotten by later Buddhists. Yeah.
0: Um, but like, what is the point for Ishwarasena to propose a third pramana, other than perception and reference? Like what was the philosophical reasons or things that important issues he, want, he wants to resolve using this, um, um, the third one?
1: Yeah, basically uh, uh, the first two, Perception and inference are responsible for positive, for knowing of positive entities, but for him there are still so-called negative entities or negative uh, or non-existence events. So those uh, should be known. So the means to know those negative entities or negative events are the so-called, uh, the third pramana, which is non-cognition.
0: Ah, uh, so maybe the difference between <clears throat> Ismarasena is that Ismarasena feels like you need a separate pramana to deal with non-existent things. But maybe Dharmakirti saying that no reference and perception and and, and um, inference is enough. Is that more or less? Yeah, okay. yeah that's the picture. So mind-bending, but thank you so much for um, clarifying this for us. So chapter six, empty terms. Here you analyze Dignaga's view on empty terms. This is a key issue in modern analytic philosophy as well. And it's also an age-old issue that may never be fully resolved, but you know, Dignaga's answers or solutions are still um, uh, interesting. So these empty terms, or oh, for example, no self, right? The self does not exist. Impermanence, a permanent entity doesn't exist. Emptiness, right? Intrinsic nature does not exist. They appeared early. They wasn't treated systematically until the sixth century common era when the Buddhist logic school developed. And of course, Dignaga was one of the leaders of this logic, uh, Buddhist uh, logic school. Um, he proposed two theories. One is a method to, of paraphrase that resembles um, Beatrice Rousseau's theory of Russell's theory of descriptions in dealing with empty terms. And the other method is his apoha theory that were later developed by Dharmakirti into a pan so Tibetans right, deal with the problem of empty subject terms, mainly with the principle of conceptual subjects that sees emptiness, rabbits' horn, desks as conceptual construct, imagined kalpita, uh, verbal objects, um, subdarta. Sabda, um, For Dhammakirti, statements like, for example, the primordial matter does not exist is not a self-contradictory thing because real terms like desks have causal efficacy and empty terms like Robbie's horn does not have causal efficacy. So it's not self-contradictory to say that the primordial matter exists as an imagined concept, but it's not real existence. This is a kind of Dhammakerti's pan-fictionalism that eliminates the problem of empty terms by claiming everything a conceptual construct. The Chinese terms being free from Dhammakerti's influence um, you know, approach is quite different. So according to your analysis you outlined for us, the Chinese Yucarans dealt with empty terms mainly in three ways. One is following the path of Dignagas, right? It just paraphrased. Like, I want to know how... Uh, Dignaga paraphrase. And number two is allowing exceptions for non implicative negations. And the third one is unique and most popular among Chinese philosophers, which is indicating the propositional attitudes, clarifying basically what I say and what you say. So among those various philosophical approaches to the problem of empty terms, I'm most interested in the method of propositional attitude, which seems to be quite unique to the Chinese tradition. So could you please explain to our listeners what exactly is this propositional attitude and what are its strengths and weaknesses, especially compared to, for example, Dignaga's paraphrase? And also, why should we study this kind of approach, this patch of its manifest weaknesses that you laid out in the, um, in your book?
1: Yeah, what I call this uh, uh, principle of uh, proportional attitude uh, is called jiebie in Chinese, uh, which can be literally translated as "propositional distinguisher." Its purpose is to distinguish between a statement that establishes one's own view and the one that refutes the view of others. Self-establishing statements are indicated by phrases like we accept, we admit, we, and as we said, while well, the other refuting statements are marked by phrases such as you accept, you believe, you, and holding. It not only involves the truth or falsity, the meaningfulness or meaninglessness of the propositions themselves, but also the intentional s- state of their advocates, uh, And it involves not only one party, but at least two parties. Therefore, I call this method the principle of propositional attitude.
0: Thank so you, there, my... Sorry. Um, may i just ask a follow-up question because i think i get confused um so why do the chinese philosophers feel like in we need to include the speaker's intention why they f- what they feel you know what do they think is missing in Dignāgas? naga's example paraphrase which you say is also similar to Russell's kind of series of descriptions maybe um, for the benefit of the listeners explain basically what are those paraphrase and Russell's theory of description and then maybe you can go from there Thank you so much
1: uh, for that part it's it's a bit technical <laughs> uh, could be the most technical part for the uh, in that chapter. Uh, it's roughly it's a logical technique, as uh, you know, developed by Russell in a very technical way uh, to deal uh, to deal with the uh, 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 like one of his famous uh, 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 example is the present king of France is born. so So uh, the the subject term here the present King of France is an empty term because in at uh, time of Russell uh, in France there's no king already. Uh so this, this term then does not refer to anything or it refers to a non-existent entity, which is the parent king of France. Uh but with this statement of the uh, uh when we say the the parent king of uh, 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 France is So, how, 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 how do we see this? So, uh, uh, so one technique of, uh, Russell developed was to rephrase it, uh, in, in a way that the, 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 the subject term of this sentence is replaced by, uh, a logical term. So uh, the logical subject is not the real subject of this sentence. So uh, uh, Dignaga's uh, method of paraphrase is roughly similar to this. Replace, uh, replace the uh, linguistic subject with a logical subject. Uh, so, uh, But in a... a in this method of principle propositional attitude, uh, the, the 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 problem was uh, because in Indian logic, it involves two parties. The two parties were debating. Uh, with the, the 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 one of the example of their debate is so called the promoting matter exists or not. The promoting matter is roughly we can say God. So, one party says God exists, but the, the Buddhist side says God, they don't believe God exists. So when they got into a debate like this, so they think, uh, yeah, in the Chinese tradition, you should ind- indicate who is stating a certain st- uh, proposition. So if you, uh, the Buddhist stating this, then you should mark that out. Uh, if the other party who believes in God has stating this statement, then they should also mark that they believe that. So with this principle, uh seems they can, in one way, solve the problem empty uh, subject terms, but it raises a new issue, actually, that is so-called incommensibility between different parties involved in the debate. So, uh, the propositional attitude is more privileged than the so called object facts in determining the truth or falsity of a given proposition. It is especially so when the matter on discussion is the metaphysical concept or a philosophical view, for instance, whether God exists or not. Uh, but the danger of relying on principle of propositional attitude lays in becoming Trapped in the incompatibility of rival parties. So that's that uh, could be the uh, uh, weakness of this uh, method. But even, yeah, given its weakness, uh, still it is helpful because the problem of empty terms, like many other age old philosophical problems, may never be definitely solved. Uh, it is an ongoing issue still in philosophy today. Besides Russell's theories of descriptions, other alternative methods have been developed to tackle the problem. These include, for instance, free logic, the logic of fiction, uh, the theory of possible worlds, and so on. Uh, the techniques that Buddhist logicians adapted, especially the principle propositional attitude, may provide their Western colleagues with even more options. Yeah, that's what I hope.
0: Thank you so much. So, the important thing about the Chinese approach is that it's a different way of tackling with the empty terms that we don't really see in the mainstream Western philosophical traditions. That's why it's important just to open up our horizon a little bit. Awesome. Thank you so much. Although I don't think I get your technical de- explanation of the Russell's theory of description, but let's move on. I can go read your book again. So chapter seven, negative judgments. This chapter illustrates Curtis um, and um, Herschel's approach um, on analysis of their experiential structures of negative cognition and their shared conclusion. This is amazing, right? Dhammakirti and Herschel, <laughs> separate by like, Um, a thousand years apart so their shared conclusion that negative judgment presupposes affirmative perceptions for example um, the sentence there is no pot this negative cognition is secondary a kind of um, inferential judgment based on affirmative perceptions of things other than pot this is for democratic's position and it's also kind of disappointment of an anticipation to perceive a pot this is for from her soul So these two philosophers both are anomalous visiting their own traditions, and they're also separated by like uh, 1,200 years apart, and yet their approach to negative judgments share some striking similarities. So so what are those striking similarities? Like how can we make sense of this fact, and what do those um, similarities tell us?
1: We are doing comparative studies in philosophy. We do sometimes find striking similarities between thinkers who are separated by time and space, and yet we have no evidence for possible diffusion. Uh, for cases like this, the only explanation is that they're being regimenting the will, so-called. So luckily, it seems easier to regiment the wheel in intellectual culture than in material culture. So that the similarities between Dunkirk and Husserl could mean that both of them are on the right track in exploring the nature of negative cognition. So that's what I you know, speculate.
0: <laughs> so basically, um, there are certain logical um, structures, logical conclusions you can make. Doesn't matter, irrelevant of your particular culture, inheritance and positions, just like certain, I don't know, feels like certain philosophical questions are shared by all human cultures. Thank you. So chapter eight, the last chapter, topology of nothing. Um before I read your chapter, I just feel like nothing is nothing. How come there can be different types of nothing? <laughs> but here you service philosophical traditions around the world and maps out this uh, topology of non-existence, which you classify into three types. One is private nothingness, um, like um, absence, nichts, in German, and then negative nothing or absolute nothing in Chinese called wo, uh, in Japanese is mu. Uh, and then the third one is original nothing, the nothingness that gives rise to everything. Uh, for example, here you gave Shunyata, right? Every, each rep- uh, and then all these three types right, of nothingness, each represents the de- development of nothingness in the West, in India, and in China. And of course, there are other ways of classifying concepts, conceptions of nothingness, but your way is especially useful for studying the relatedness of, for example, Heideggerian nothingness with Taoist and Buddhist nothingness. In a nutshell, Heidegger equates nothing with being, which Heidegger claimed to have inherited from Hegel, but both Hegelian and Heideggerian nothing ran parallel to the Taoist cosmological notion of nothing. As for emptiness in Buddhism, right? two ways of understanding are. No, either absolute nothing or original nothing. But Nagarjuna claims emptiness to be neither being nor non being. But according to uh, Professor Yao Chihua, your analysis claims like emptiness itself is empty eventually leads to absolutely nothing. I mean, absolute nothing, that's your term. So Yogacharas understand emptiness as absence of private nothing. That's non existence of subject object duality or non existence of wondrous beings. And more than delineate different forms of nothingness for us, right? The larger significance of this particular typology is to shed a different light on how past philosophers tackled this mystery of nothing across history and across culture. So please tell us, tell our listeners, what's the advantages of seeing this kind of issue under this new threefold topology? And um, yeah, and then. what is um, like how um, how what are the kind of things that we need to be aware of when we use this this threefold typology?
1: Yeah, first uh, I have to correct your summary of my three types of nothing. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, there are uh, primitive <laughs> nothing, negative netting, and origin mm-hmm. nothing, but they do not correspond respectively to niche Ooh. And Shuneta, or West China and India. As you rightly observed in the latter part, actually, they can be mapped into different traditions in a more complicated manner, but not in a simple way as, as the 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 beginning of your summary. Uh, as for the advantage of this threefold topology of nothing, I hope that I have clarified some confusions in the understanding of nothing in the history of Chinese, India, and Western philosophy. Let me give two examples. So in the history of Western philosophy, the mystery of nothing is usually associated with two equally mysterious questions. One is why, according to Parmenides, can we think or talk about non-being? This question becomes even more intriguing in contrast to the fact that we can about non-being or nothing with ease in our ordinary language. The other is the famous Leibnizian-Heideggerian question, why is there something rather than nothing, which has been taken to be the fundamental question of metaphysics. According to my topology of nothing, when Parmenides forbid us from thinking or talking about non-being, he was warning us against the outgathered knot of absolute nothing, for example, spiritual core and the son of better women. It is evident that this type of nothing was mainly logicians' concern, including the Chinese Moists, uh, moist, uh, the Hindu and Buddhist logicians, and the contemporary analytical philosophers. Given its nature of being logically contradictory, and impossible. So this type of nothing, uh, which is you know absolute nothing, as predicted by Parmenides, does not really into uh, does not really enter into our realm of knowledge, but rather function as an indicator of the limit of human knowledge. What does enter into the realm of our knowledge and ordinary language is a different type of nothing. To break the curse of Parmenides, Plato and his followers were approaching what there's not in a sense of difference, or in India terminology, mutual non-being. As the absence of provision of being, this type of nothing is always an essential part of our knowledge. So the reason we can think and talk about non-being or nothing with ease in our modern language is not because Parmenides was wrong, but because we are approaching a different interpretation of nothing. So that's the first example. The second one, uh, the Leibniz was the first philosopher to put forward the perplexing metaphorical question, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, various attempts to answer this question have understood nothing as an absolute nothing that is logically impossible. The question then becomes purely speculative, as if it is possible from the state of absolute nothing to exist pre- prior to something. However, if we understand nothing in the Heideggerian or Direct sense of original nothing, then the question is a matter of cosmogony. Uh, namely, how the concrete something with the form and the image comes about from the formless imageless state. To answer this, uh, Christian theologians, for instance, would resort to God's will, whereas Taoists would rely on the creativity of Tao. In either case, nothing should not be understood as absolute nothing or absence, instead, nothing is the formless, imageless state of existence, which is described as earth and water covered with darkness in the book of Genesis, uh, or simply as chaos in those writings. So it is only with these concepts of nothing uh, that we can make sense of this fundamental question of uh, mathematics.
0: Thank you so much, Zhihua. I still corrected. So the three types of nothingness is kind of a philosophical typology of how how you how different ways you can interpret nothing. But with this kind of philosophical kind of typology, you will go back to history and see, understand the historical debates in a new light. And each tradition have their own way of, like, um, different philosophers argue for different types of nothingness. So, listeners, don't listen to my question. I got things wrong. Um, so, after about this long time of talking about nothingness, um, so we've taken a lot of your time. Is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss here that you'd like to highlight for the listeners and readers?
1: Uh, maybe just one more point, uh, all about discussions on non-existence or non-being uh, have to do with the over-understanding of existence or being, that's right. But what is existence? What is being? This has been the fundamental question since the beginning of philosophy. But till today, we are still powered by it. So when I deal with knowledge of uh, non-existence or non-being, I don't claim that I've solved all the related problems, but I only provide provide some alternative approaches from the Buddhist tradition.
0: Thank you. I think now you've answered my first question. Like, What gets you into this discussion? Write a whole book about nothing. It's all about just another way to understand existence, knowledge. Thank you so much. So, last question. Before we part our race, I'd like to ask one last traditional New Books Network question. What keeps you busy now? What are you working on?
1: Yeah, actually, as you already said, uh, this uh, refers back to the very first question. Yeah, because I was uh, 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 part of always, always part of by the, 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 the issue of uh, being or existence. So, I plan to work on non-being or non-existence first. Uh, But eventually, uh, uh, yeah, now, uh, among many things of different nature I'm working in right now, the more philosophical issues that still, you know, uh, 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 follow me all the way, actually, is concerned exactly with the question of being or existence. I try now actually uh, already finished a few uh, papers. Try uh, to so examine the views on existence as developed by various Buddhist schools. In particular, uh, there's no uh, there's strategy among many of them in proposing a state of being in between being and non being, existence and non existence, which they call nominal existence uh in Sanskrit that that, that is Prajnapti Sat or in Chinese it's Jayu. Many of these uh Buddhist schools they uh, yeah, when they made this proposal they adopt uh, so-called ontological pluralism this is very interesting so I also plan to evaluate uh, evaluate how uh, whether and how this view uh, can hold can make sense. So yeah, this is what I'm writing now actually. Yeah,
0: even more mind finding Just like 加油 the. De- nominal existence is in between being and not being okay i'm just like fascinated by all the things that um, you highlight for us so thank you so much for your time here and thank you again for writing this amazing book and for sharing the insights and you know for us to kind of think about process and learn further just a reminder for the future readers i hope you pick up this book Uh, You don't need to read a whole book in one setting and you can get things wrong. I got things wrong, (laughs) even after spending so much time reading it. So you can just pick up one argument in one chapter and still learn a lot. So I'm looking forward, uh, Professor Yao Zhihua, to reading your new work soon. And listeners, pick up this book. You won't be disappointed.
1: Thank you.